0: Well, good evening, church family. It's good to see each of you. Let me make sure I turn the mute button off. Good. All right. We, uh, we're going to get started here in just a moment. I uh, want to welcome everyone here. If you're new to our Thursday night Bible study, thank you for being here. And uh, we're coming out of Easter, so a few of our regulars have moved back to the north country, uh, not on the advisement of their pastor. Um, I wanted them to stay as long as they possibly could. If not, just go ahead and move down. But uh, some of them have gone back. And others of you are, have, uh, are new, and we're thankful that you're here. And uh, we're going to get into the Word. And, and tonight we're in chapter 17 of 1 Samuel as we continue our study on the kings. The kings. Now, before we get started, we're going to pray. But before we pray... there's no way that we can't just take a moment and give thanks to God for what's been happening in the life of our church the last few weeks. Uh, Man, oh man. Uh, From Easter right on into the missions weekend two weekends ago, wasn't that wonderful? And uh, getting a chance to really connect with those missionaries who came and visited, the heads of organizations. And I love their hearts. I got to... Message today through the church uh, website, uh, somebody wrote in info at uh, viralbiblefellowship.org, and it was Mike uh, Williams who is the leader of Crossover Cups, and he said, "Greg, I'm I'm putting two teams together or a team sometime in uh, June or July, uh, maybe May, and I just wanted to extend to you and your church, and so my thing is I'll go to the com- to the missions committee and say." Talk with Mike, and let's see if that's something that we want to participate in to some, to some degree. Uh, it's just exciting, the relationship that has started with these ministries and the opportunities for us to come alongside. So that was a great weekend. And then, of course, last weekend, how many of you enjoyed that were at service on Sunday, enjoyed the baptism service? Oh, my goodness. Was that not glorious? And uh, I, I still have a picture of Allison. Uh, Coming up out of the water and then just sitting there with her hands over her over her face, just weeping before the Lord. It meant so much to her, and it meant a lot to us, didn't it? To see a brother or sister in Christ who truly understands that uh, that is a public profession of faith in Christ, and they became overwhelmed by it. And uh, I think all of us were tearing up too. (laughs) I was looking around. And then the young man who came to me and, and at, as the boys were being baptized, and he said, Pastor, he said, I, I was baptized as an infant in the Catholic Church. I don't remember it, obviously, and it didn't hold any significant value to me personally. And I want to be baptized. Can I be baptized today? Um, it took me about this long. Yes. <laughs> And I said, go, go speak with Adam. Make sure Adam's good with it, the head of the uh, Teen Challenge Ministry. And so we baptized him in his clothing. <laughs> he had his long pants on. I think he had jeans or I don't know what he had. And uh, and so I was standing behind the crowd. I, I'm taller and bigger, so I wanted people to see. So I went and stood in the back. And after he came out of the water and got his hugs, he, he came over and was standing there close by me, gave me a big hug. And... and uh, and I said, buddy, I said, uh, that was a blessing. And I said, you're wet. <laughs> and he, he said, yep. And we're getting ready to go back to church. So I took my shirt off and I said, here, you have my shirt. And uh, I had a t-shirt on. And I had another shirt in the bathroom I was going to go and change anyway. After service, he came up and he just said, Pastor Greg, what a, this was wonderful. What a great experience for me. And I said, that's awesome. And he said, I'll, I'll wash your shirt and get it back to you. I said, I said, man, that shirt looks so good on you, you keep it. <laughs> but the relationship that we've developed with Teen Challenge is, is wonderful Amen. and so important that uh, we have uh, the youth, that we see youth coming to Christ, that we have young people, young adults that come into the church and not just that they're there, but that they engage in ministry. That's so vitally important that a church has all ages. I've always said, you know, you have, uh, there's two kinds of ungodly people that, uh, or two kinds of, yeah, ungodly people that can, that can be part of church. Uh, there is just the outright ungodly. The person doesn't believe in God. They only go to church because of their spouse, whatever, you know. Then you've got the religious. And the religious are just as unsaved as the ungodly. It's just that they know how to fake it well. And oftentimes in many churches, it's the religious that sit on boards and committees in churches. Because they look the part, they can talk the talk, they can sing the songs, they know the lingo, the vernacular of the church, and so they fit right in. And the only one who really knows is the Lord. He knows their heart. And so many churches literally are being run by by tares, not wheat. And uh, then the second group are uh, those who are babes in Christ and brats. (laughs) Babes in Christ, everybody who comes to the Lord, you can be 80 years old and come to Christ and you're a babe in Christ. Uh, If you're older tonight and you're not saved, man, you can be a babe again, get saved. Um, And then there's brats, those who, who should have moved on after they, were, after they came off of the being weaned on milk of the Word. But they're still on milk. They're, they're, they, they won't grow. And churches are filled with, with babes and brats. And then the third group are spiritual young men and women who have the potential to become spiritual mothers and fathers. And we want our spiritual moms and dads to embrace the spiritual babes, and to come alongside the brats and speak the word that they need to hear in love to grow them. That's a healthy church. You have all ages, multi-generational, and everybody knows where they are. And if you're a spiritual mom and dad, that means you're willing to pour into those who are younger. And the scripture speaks of that. And if you're a spiritual young man or woman, then you are growing in christ it's exciting and you have much to offer the life of the church and if you're a spiritual babe you're just sucking on the milk and making a mess in your diaper and that's okay we'll change your diaper for you until you grow up amen Amen. that's the way it is that's god's church that's what paul said in first corinthians 2 when he talked about uh that uh, that that natural the natural man cannot appraise spiritual things and then in chapter 3, he got on them, and he just said, look, you're still acting like, uh, like little babes, but you're brats. He said, you're, you're carnal, you're fleshly, when you should have grown up. And I think that's, that's important. So I love seeing what I'm seeing in the life of our church. I think that's the greatest thermometer for the life of the church. Do you have various ages, and are they all carrying out the role every person carrying out the role that God's given them. And I, I pray that if, you, if you're not, that God will speak to your heart about it. Well, let's pray. Father, we do thank you tonight for this time of teaching. We thank you for each person that's here. Each person is valuable to you, of great value, so valuable that you are willing to, to pay for us by the death of yourself. That's how valuable we are, that you yourself went to the cross through Jesus Christ, the Son. And Lord, tonight we just pray that uh, the Holy Spirit would enlighten us to the Word of God. We pray that, that we would grow and we would learn, like Peter said, that we would grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ so father we give you this time we give you our thoughts we give you our full attention speak to us by your word in Jesus name Amen Amen the chapter before us tonight chapter 17 tells one of the best-known best-loved stories in all of the Bible it's the story of David and Goliath chapter 17 of first Samuel this is a story filled with lessons of God's faithfulness, even in the most seemingly impossible circumstances. Now, it says in verse 1, "...the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered in Soko." I can't even pronounce half these names, so please forgive me. "...which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Secco and Azekah in Ephesus." you got to be careful with the last part of that word. Daman and Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up in the line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. Don't let the word mountain throw you in the English standard version. It really wasn't a high peak. It was more like a Uh, a a, a strong hill you know a a bigger hill and so they're able to it's they're up so high they're not up so high that they can't yell across the valley to the other side and that's what they were doing uh the philistines were encamped in judah this is happening in judah what is judah it's the place of praise that's what judah means the place of praise you've got the philistine army these, these uncircumcised Philistines who are camped out in the, in the place of praise. So they ought not be there. And the Bible gives us a great story of how God removed them. Verse four, and there came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. That's somewhere between eight and a half feet tall and nine feet two inches. So a lot of times you'll hear a pastor say he was nine feet tall, and it's very possible that he was. Goliath means strip, S-T-R-I-P, which is exactly what our adversary does as he strips us of our joy, happiness, purpose, and peace. How does he do it? By threatening us, by putting fear into us, which is exactly what was happening to God's army. He had a helmet of bronze on his head and he was armed with a coat of of mail and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. That's approximately somewhere between, uh, the estimates are between 150 and 200 pounds. So this man's nine feet tall in that ballpark and he's not just tall, he is strapping He is strong, that he can bear 150 pounds of armor, (laughs) of of equipment that he has on. Uh, Look look at this. He he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spearhead weighed 600 shekels of iron. That's 25 pounds. The head of his spear weighed 25 pounds. Let me give you a comparison so you get the picture. Uh, A shot put weighs about 16 to 17 pounds. You watch men today with a shot put. They pick it up, and they they have to kind of get going, and then they do their twist, and they throw it. Well, his was 25 pounds, and he's doing this with it. (laughs) Just think about that. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? So he's calling Saul out here. Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. In other words, send down a man to me. I like that phrase because there would indeed be a man who is the son of man. Jesus Christ himself, who would come down and take out Satan and all of his demons. I love that. There's so many comparisons in this story to Jesus Christ. And we'll try to pick up a few of them along the way. Verse 9, if he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. The whole picture is not here. Let me give you a background. Uh, the Philistines we've studied already came from the Isle of, uh, island off of, off of Greece. They were people who were seafaring. They traveled over and moved into the promised land in that region, but not over into, they didn't cross the Jordan, so they stayed on the uh, west side. And they, they were trained by the, by the Greeks in the use of weapons and in the strategies of war, uh, the Philistines had access to iron and they were able to create their instruments for war, but they also used them for farming tools. Israel did not have that. Uh, The the Philistines had horses. They had able to make chariots. Uh, Israel had none of that. They were an agrarian people they were people who just give me a pitchfork and a hoe and I can tell you what to do with it, but don't give me a sword. And the Philistines said, I defy, this is just something, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Goliath defeated Saul and, the, and his army on fear alone. He never had to fight a battle. He just spoke the words. He looked the part. And Israel cowered in fear. He was, and, 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 and it's not surprising to see here that it says, it doesn't just say that the army of the Lord, it says, Saul and the army of Israel. Saul, too, was dismayed. He was in dread over this man. And he should be because, honestly, he's the logical choice to go out and fight the man. We already learned when he was a young man, he was taller. He was head and shoulder above all all others in Israel. He was strapping. He was a big guy. If anybody should face Goliath, it ought to be Saul. He's the closest thing we have to a giant. And yet he is in dread, in fear. In any contest, it's always useful to to demoralize your opponent and strike fear in their heart. When you do, first, it makes makes them think that you're going to wipe them out. Fear keeps them from functioning well in a battle when you can intimidate them before the battle. You see teams come out on the ball field and they rally up, and they hoot and holler and all that, and a lot of times the other team's just overwhelmed by playing in that stadium, maybe it's a smaller team, they don't play in big stadiums, and they're just overwhelmed, and they lose simply on the tactics before the battle ever begins. I, when I was in, co- in, high, in college, rather, I, uh, I uh, would go over to Anderson High School in Indiana for the basketball games, They, too, were the Indians, like Vero Beach. But their Indian meant something completely different than the, when you think of the Vero Beach Indians, and and locally the Wigwam, where they play their basketball game. Uh, Up in Anderson, their Wigwam held 7,500 people, and they packed it out every game. Businessmen from Indianapolis would bring their clients. They would get tickets and bring their clients to the high school basketball game in Anderson, because the pregame show was unbelievable. The full band up in the, you know, up in Indiana and in those midwestern states. A lot of them, the the gymnasium was really an arena, but at one end of the behind the court is the stage, and the full band would be up on the stage. And then you've got the lights that just go out in the state, in this arena. And then a spotlight in the corner as the Indian chief, the Anderson Indian, comes out doing a war dance before the game. And then the little Pocahontas comes out behind him. And they do this thing in the, on the court, and the drum is hitting this beat the whole time they're doing it. And the crowd is stomping their feet the whole time. And, and uh, Norm Held, the head coach at Anderson, said uh, they specifically, when they built that arena, they put the guest locker room under the right under where the booster club. You had all these kids, they would wear these, their colors were red and green, Christmas colors. And they, they all came in their sweaters, because, you know, Indiana in basketball season, winter, they come in their sweaters, and I mean, you're talking more people in the booster club than in the whole high school game in Vero Beach. And they would put them right above in these wooden stands and they would just pound. And so here you are, you're the opposing team coming into that. And you hear this constant thump going on and thousands of people. And of course when the lights come back on, the team runs out, everybody's hooting and hollering. And it's as if there's not another team even showing up. You, nobody notices you. Well, that's all for show, but it's also psychological warfare. It's to win the game before the tip-off. And I'm sure that there were times where it had an effect. Now, a great team looks beyond that, like a David. David was not like Saul. We're going to see that in just a moment. It says in verse... Twelve. Now David was the son of Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. Don't think that in the book of First and Second Samuel, like in the book of Judges, that everything is in chronological order. Um, it's not. We already had in chapter sixteen; it was mentioned that David would play his heart before Saul, right? That hasn't happened yet. So that was simply giving us, giving us information about what would happen, but it hadn't happened yet. And so now David, he's being introduced, uh, and, so, and Jesse had eight sons. And in those days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. So Saul is a lot older now. Remember, Saul ruled Israel for 40 years. And the three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. And David was the youngest. The the three eldest followed Saul. So there were eight total, and the three oldest had to go to battle with Saul. David's the youngest. Of course, he's the shepherd boy, right? Uh, David is said to be the youngest of eight sons, yet... Psalm 89 verse 27. Listen to how it's recorded about David. It calls David God's firstborn. Now that doesn't mean firstborn in the sense of chronological age as much as it is a description or it's, it's, it's speaking of uh, a title and a concept and I'll explain that to you. When Paul first calls Jesus Christ firstborn over all creation in Colossians 1.15. He's not saying that Jesus was born of God the Father. Jesus is God. He was not born of God. And so what is he saying when he says firstborn? He's saying, he's simply pointing out that Jesus has prominence and preeminence over all creation. That's all it is. The Bible even calls Israel God's firstborn Israel was not the first nation on the earth far from that yet they are special to God in prominence and preeminence David was an eighth son eight in the Bible is the number of sanctification and it also so speaks of new beginnings the other brothers were thought to be more qualified but God said to Samuel this is the one this is the man I've set him apart you look at the outward appearance, I look at the heart, I've sanctified this guy. So that's little David, the shepherd boy. Verse 15, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. So he was sent from his father to go to the battlefield to bring supplies, food, whatever, to his brothers. And then he would go back to the, to the sheep. Uh, now, it's interesting here. Verse 16, for 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand, speaking of Goliath. Morning and evening, twice a day he'd come out and defy the ranks of Israel. Laugh at them, mock them, call them dogs. I mean, he's just going after them. Uh, the word or the number 40 in the Bible is a number of testing and trial. So Israel's going through a testing and trial. God's putting them through this. It, it, if you remember, the rains pelted Noah's ark for 40 days, right? Uh, the children of Israel wandered for 40 years. Jesus was tested in the wilderness after 40 days. Okay, so it's a time of testing and trial. Verse 17 and Jesus, I'm sorry, and Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an Ephah of this uh, parched grain. And these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also, take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well, and bring some some uh, taken from them. Uh, and now, and that, and Saul. Now, Saul and they, all the men of Israel, were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. So again, David is being sent to go and to minister to his brothers. Uh, and He's sent by His Father to His brothers. Jesus also was sent by His Father to us, right? John 6, 48 says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that, that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So David was sent to bring his brother's bread. Jesus was sent to be the bread to those who would follow him. Verse 20, And David rose early in the morning and, left the, sheep and with the keep, left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. So he's obeying his father. But I don't want to miss this little observation here. This is so important. Look what it says. Right here we see the shepherd's heart of David. He left the sheep in the hands of a capable keeper in order to run an errand that his father asked him to make for his brothers. The sheep were still cared for by David. Okay, And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. Don't get alarmed. They did this every day a couple times a day. They just never acted on it. So the armies gathered on each hillside, screaming and shouting at each other across the valley. And Goliath made his parade and shouted his insults. And after a while, the Israelites slinked away in shame. That's what they would do. You know, they'd come out, get the rally cry, act like they're going to do something. And then Goliath would speak his words, I defy the ranks of Israel and choose a man among you, you bunch of dogs. And of course, they would go run and hide in fear their tail tucked between their legs. Verse 22, and David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And as he talked with them, behold the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. Again, day after day, 40 days, twice a day, Goliath taunted and mocked the armies of Israel, exposing them all as cowards. I mean, can you imagine after 40 days how belittled you must feel? Okay, 40 days of this nonsense. Listen, especially Saul, because Goliath would call out his name. He didn't say King Saul. Saul, you and your army. Um, I don't know. I I look at that and I just think, God, raise up a man. Of course, God does here. We need those men today, don't we? Men and women who will stand up for the name of the Lord. What What did God say about Israel? Why did he raise up Israel? He made it very clear that my name might be great and be heard and known throughout the world. Verse 26, and David said to the men men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? See, David saw it as a reproach. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? What in the world is going on? He just shows up, you know, bringing the bread and cheeses and stuff, and he hears this knucklehead out there, this nine-foot-tall guy, a big old mouth breather, and he's like, what the heck is going on with you guys? He's defying our Lord. He's defying Israel. What's going on here? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of a living God? A man, that's a man after God's own heart. This tells you a lot about David. He's not looking at a giant who's taking on the men of Israel. He sees a giant who's taking on the God of Israel. And he's like, that's an easy win, guys. He's not taking us on, he's taking on God. And that's our God he's taking on. Let's just go out and take care of business. And of course, they're not, they're not hearing it. They're not going to have any part in that. Their focus was on the danger of the battle or the material rewards to be won. But David set his focus on the reputation of Israel and the honor of the living God. See, perspective, listen, as a believer in this, perspective is everything. I'm not saying their power's in perspective. I'm not some kind of a self-helps kind of guy here. I'm, I'm talking about either you see God for who He is and you believe in Him or you let the world influence you in what you believe. And, and when the men of Israel said, This man, speaking of Goliath, this man, this man, David said, You mean the uncircumcised Philistine? Called it out, didn't he? Let's just be real about who this guy is. He's nothing but an uncircumcised Philistine. He doesn't believe in God. When the men of Israel said, Surely he has come up to defy Israel, David said, He's defying the armies of the living God. There's a big difference. He's not just defying men, he's defying the God of those men. When the men of Israel said, The man who kills him, David said, The man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel. David's got a whole different perspective. See, David doesn't see things from man's perspective. He could—I mean, he could have settled for that—but he rather he sees things from God's perspective. See, that's what it means to walk in the Spirit, to live by the Word. Is to as you approach life, as you go from day to day, you don't carry a worldview, a belief system that. Dishonors God. You you have a biblical belief system, a biblical worldview, and so everything that happens, you filter it through that view. Now you have the right perspective to face whatever you're going through in life, and you should look different going through it, and you should look different coming out of it. We shouldn't look like the world when we enter, or while we're in the in the mess, because our perspective is different. And we come out of it differently, so much so that the world looks and goes, how? How did you do that? How did you not let those people just get to under your skin? You just seemed to coast right through it. Well, you didn't do anything. You just kept your focus on the Lord, let the Lord do the work, right? right? They don't understand that. The Bible says that the natural, in 1 Corinthians, the natural man cannot appraise spiritual things. But the spiritual man, he appraises all things. By the Spirit, we understand how to live in this world. The world doesn't understand it. They're hopping around from president to, you know, every kind of vaccination and everything else going on. That's their hope. It's all they had to hold on to. I'm not saying that those things are wrong. I'm glad we have a president. But uh, presidents come and go. Some of them know the Lord, others don't know the Lord. Some of them are actually believers and others aren't. And, and so, if you put your hope in the president, you're gonna, your life's gonna be like this. I mean, I don't trust politicians, okay? I think Psalm 40 was written for him. Where it says, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust and doesn't, doesn't lapse into falsehood with those politicians. I'm I'm glad for that. I don't have to trust in those, those people. I want to look different going through this life. I want to have joy, peace, righteousness. I want to be faithful going through this life. Don't you? And so to get there, you don't conjure it up. You don't work it up. You don't fire yourself up. You just get the right perspective. I am His child. I have my identity in Him. And here's what my God says, and I'm going to believe it. Even in this day, this Bible is just as effective, just as reliable, and just as helpful. Amen? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David, his youngest brother. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those Few sheep in the wilderness, I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. One would have thought that David's visit would please Eliab because he's bringing him breads and cheese and a good report from home. But that's not the case. David's words angered his brother. And here's, there's some reasons why. We have to guess. We, the Bible doesn't give us specifics, but let's just, let's just go ahead and throw some thoughts out on this. First, he was angry because he felt David was an insignificant, worthless person. You're just a sheep herder. And look what he said. You you just watch a few sheep. I mean, he didn't even give the sheep credit, you know, the, the herd credit. It's just a small herd, just a few sheep. He's trying to belittle him as much as he can. You should be tending the flocks. What are you doing here? And second, he was angry because he felt... He knew David's motivation, but it's more reflected of his own heart. When he starts talking, you know, about, uh, you know, I know the presumption of evil in your heart, uh, he's really speaking about himself. He really doesn't know David's heart. God's already revealed to us in prior chapter that David's heart's after God's heart. So obviously, Eliad doesn't have a clue what he's talking about. Third, he was angry because he thought, David tried to provoke someone else into fighting Goliath uh, just so he could see a battle. You know, you've come down to see the battle. That's what he said. Eliab himself was a tall man, a strapping, good-looking guy. Remember when Samuel came to anoint the next king out of the house of Jesse? Eliab walked out first, the oldest son. He went, oh, surely, surely this is the Lord's anointed. Why? Because he looked the part. Okay, so so if Eliab looked the part, why wasn't he facing Goliath? Okay, he's angry because he thought David tried to provoke someone into fighting the the giant, like himself. So he's upset about it. Uh, Finally, he was angry because David was right. Everything David said was right. This this giant is a reproach to Israel. He's bringing a reproach upon Israel. And when you're dismayed and full of dread, the last thing you want is somebody who's walking around with courage and faith. Now let's just put that in practical terms. Sometimes we struggle in life and our faith is weakened by whatever it might be. And we're just not in a good place. And maybe for whatever reason, we haven't turned to the Lord to get help and allow the Lord to strengthen us. And so here you are in this bad place, and you're not looking good, you're not thinking good, you're not... And somebody walks up, praise the Lord, brother! Hallelujah! How are you today? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm good. How are you? Man, I'm great. Never been better. The Lord's good. And it's just like putting coals of fire on your head. That's what's happening here. Verse 29, and David said, what have I done now? Eliab, come on. Was it not but a word? Didn't I just say a word? I like the rendering in the NASB, you know what it says? But David said, what have I done now? Was it not just a question? But I'll tell you what I really like is the New King James or the KJV. They both render it. And David said, what have I done now? Is there not a cause? You talk about drilling deep. David just took it down to the real issue here. You're upset with me being here, you're, making, you're talking, you're losing energy over the fact that I showed up when there's a giant out there that you ought to be using that energy on. And he's basically saying, is this not a cause to go and stand for God? What is wrong with you guys? He stuck to his position. There's no doubt that what his brothers Eliab and others, Said They said to hurt him, no question about it, but he wouldn't let it hinder him. David kept his focus on God's cause ahead of everything else. He pushed down his own personal agenda, his own personal safety, his own personal name recognition, his own personal honor, and instead he allowed a passionate concern for God to rise up within him. That's what it means to be a Christian Christian. To stand for God when it's not popular. Don't listen to people around you. Don't let them set the temperature of your heart. You allow the Lord to build a fire in your being, white hot, over matters that concern the Lord. We get so hot and bothered over the silliest, most ridiculous things. And then when it comes to standing for God, we're like little wimps. Watery-eyed, weak-kneed, we don't know what to do. We act like there's no... What what can we do? There's nothing to do. Is there not a cause? And what cause are you fighting for? The only cause that matters is the Lord, right? And the things of the Lord. To make His name great. To bring glory to His name. You say, but if I speak, it's not going to bring glory because they're just going to hate me. It's not about you. It's about Him. You just speak. You stand. You stand. Let the Lord do the work. Let the Lord do the rest. Before David fought a physical battle with Goliath, he first had to conquer the battle with words. i got to tell you, I think that there's something in that for us. That oftentimes we want to do something great for God, and we are excited about it. And then words come towards us, negative words, critical words, cynical words. And it knocks us off course. It takes the air out. And we end up doing nothing. We need to learn from David. (laughs) The same thing happened to David, but he didn't let it take him off course. He stayed focused on the cause in front of him. There's a man out there on that field, I don't care how tall he is, he's going up against God. Who cannot see that if we just go in the name of the Lord, God will win the battle for us. Amen? So David's sanctified by the Spirit, sent by the Father. And he goes out and he does the work that Israel, which means God-governed couldn't do and wouldn't do. And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. And when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. So David didn't just say it to his brother, David said it to the troops. Here's David. Uh, he's like a William Wallace. He's going up and down the line calling these guys out. Come on. He's a uncircumcised philistine. And word gets to Saul, and David told, and 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 uh, and so Saul sent for him in verse thirty-two. And David said to Saul, "Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine." I love that. Let no one, no man's heart fail because of him. Don't don't let this guy put you in dread and fear. Don't let him dismantle your faith. David says. Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. That should have cut Saul to his heart. Here's a shepherd boy who has the heart of a real king. Saul does not possess that heart. It's not about measuring up to the size of the opponent. It's about knowing who your God is. David's faith is unshaken because of God. Verse 33, and Saul said to David, You are not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. So, Saul, wrong perspective. He just doesn't get it. What would the probability be that David would win the battle, looking simply at the physical elements? Based on Saul's response, zero. I'll take on Goliath. Saul said, You don't have a chance. You're just a kid, and he's a giant who's been at war his whole life. But David said to Saul, this is is a shepherd boy speaking into the king. Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. I want you to think of Jesus Christ. The son of David, as we read this, Jesus took on the lion and the bear and he brought, he brought, he mortified the sins under his feet that you and I had committed. And if he rose against me, I caught him by the beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. He keeps coming back to that. That's why he is fired up. He is making fun of our God. Do you not see that? And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistines. David gets it. If you think that I'm going to put on armor and go out and defeat that man, you're wrong. But my God who lives in me, He can overcome anything in my path, especially when it comes against Him. So you say, how long did David prepare to fight Goliath? How long did he prepare to fight Goliath? If you ask me, I'm going to say his entire life. When he took on the lion, that was preparation. Took on the bear, that was preparation. If David ran scared at the lion or the bear, he would never have been ready to face Goliath. But he was faithful then, so guess what? His first response is to be faithful now. How do you as a believer take on the Goliaths in your life? I'll tell you how. By first taking on the bear and the lion in your life. The smaller things that can easily upset many Christians, you should grow to the point where it no longer upsets you. You look beyond it. You're like, ah, it's just a bump in the road, no big deal. Not worried about that. My God's bigger than that. Next thing you know, now God puts something larger in your path. Next thing you know, something else, and you're just taking them on, why? Because you're being strengthened in the Lord to represent God. um verse 37 he says and Saul said to David latter part of the verse go and the lord be with you okay Saul's like uh, you go ahead and face a giant better you than me that's really what he's saying well I'm not going to talk you out of it you're just ignorant you're young you know that's what young people possess energy and ignorance so you go out in your energy and ignorance go ahead I've got the wisdom and wounds. I know what I'm talking about, but you just go ahead. Better you than me. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head, clothed him with a coat of mail, and David stopped, stopped his sword over, uh, strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. <laughs> so Saul's like, okay, you're going to die, but let me go ahead and put you in some armor. Maybe you'll last a little longer on the field. And then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. There it is. What are you allowing God to test you with? Do you understand that the problems of life, the setbacks of your life, are tests that the Lord will use to strengthen you? Maybe Saul was feeling guilty about sending a boy into battle. So he gave him his armor. Here, David lays his, his armor aside. He's like, No, I don't need that. I've got the Lord. That's good enough. Then he took his staff in his hand and, fi- and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. A boy with a sling and stones going up against the Philistine. You don't see anything in there about David had to swallow deep. He had to really, you know, he quivered as he was going. No, no. He quietly took the things that the Lord had provided him, and he learned how to use well. And now he approaches the giant. Often people try to fight with another person's armor. They see God do something wonderful through someone else and they think, well, that's what I need. No, what you need is God in you. You don't need all that other junk. Why did David grab five stones? Well, it could be because Goliath had four brothers. If I take this guy out, his brothers are going to come out in the field after me. I've got one for each of them too. Uh, probably not the case. Uh, I, I think he knew that God would show up, and he would only need one. I don't think he really thought that oh, I'm going to need five stones. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David, with his shield bearer in front of him. <laughs> all this armor, all this this equipment, the weaponry that that Goliath had, and he still had to have an armor bearer walking in front of him against a boy with a, with a slingshot. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was a, but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. He's insulted. You send this kid out? And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. There again, what's he doing? He's puffing up. He's trying to intimidate David before the battle ever begins. He's trying to threaten David and make him back down. But I want you to look and remember, David's perspective is not looking at a giant in front of him. David is looking at the God that this giant is defying. And then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you, look at this, in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air, to the wild beasts of the earth. Here it is, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. This was not about David getting a name for himself. He is representing God alone. Both David and Jesus were strong in faith. To Goliath's face and within the ear of his countrymen, David said, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I mean, everybody heard him say it. And in the ears of the Jewish leaders and the people and the disciples, Jesus said, "Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. There's nothing you can do about it. Scripture says that the faith, that faith abides in the heart and is released through the mouth." That's what Romans 10:10 says. It says, "For the, the heart with, with the heart one believes and is justified, And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. It's one thing to believe in your heart silently. It's another thing entirely to make a public statement of faith. To stand when it's not popular and proclaim that you believe in the God of Israel. Verse 47, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. God doesn't need that stuff. God does not need a president, doesn't need a cabinet, doesn't need a nation to bail him out or prop him up. He just needs the people who believe in him. He's already sovereign. He's doing everything he desires to do, and he's allowing everything to happen. When, it, when, it, when, when you read that a nation is sovereign, it means basically they, they don't need help from the outside. They are a sovereign. They, they will take care of their things, and they have full control of it. Well, guess what? That sovereign nation ain't nothing compared to sovereign God. He's the one that rules the steps of man. And, and, and we should know that. We should walk in that. And, and when the Philistines, verse 48, arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. I love that. There's no hesitation. He knows the battle's already won. You and I as believers, Jesus has already won the battle for us. It's not a future win. It's a past win. We should be running towards the trial, knowing that God's going to prove himself strong through it. David put his hand in his in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine right on the forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. He didn't just hit Goliath in the head and knock the guy out. He killed the giant. The stone Crushed the frontal skull of that giant. I, I don't know if God did something special there, or David was so juiced up for the Lord that he slung that thing extra hard. I don't know what happened, but he crushed Goliath. Jesus went to Golgotha, the place of the skull, and he crushed Satan. He mortified our sins under his feet. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. That's really not the case at all. David prevailed because the Lord did his work, the Lord showed up. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine. Took, his, took the Philistine's sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. They knew, look, they didn't fear David. They feared the God of David because David made it clear, you have not defied me today. You have defied my God today. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from, Sh- uh, I can't even, Sharim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. So David snatched the enemy's weapon and used it against him. Satan wanted Jesus dead. And Jesus used death against Satan. God raised him from the dead, signifying that the the sin debt was paid in full. Verse 54, and David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. Both David and Jesse singularly secured the victory. I said Jesse, Jesus. According to Goliath's own rules, one man would win the victory for the entire army. That's what he said in verse 9. And according to the word, Jesus won the battle for all mankind. In John chapter 12, verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the rulers of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Who's doing the lifting of the name of the Lord? That's what he's talking about here. He's talking about, if I'll be lifted up, if you will open your mouth and speak the name of the Lord and speak in His behalf. Don't be belligerent. Don't be obnoxious. Don't try to win. It's not about you being somebody, being recognized and known. You just, in your own quiet voice, when the opportunity arises, you speak for the Lord. And in doing so, you're lifting Jesus up on the cross as you share the gospel. And Jesus says, if you'll just lift my name up, what I did for man, I will draw men to me. I'll do my part. You don't have to try to do it. You just be a a, a lifter of the name of Jesus. And as soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistines, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire those whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from the striking down of the Philistines, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. <laughs> so he's coming before the king with the head of the giant that the king was fearful of. And Saul said to him, think about how that must must have made Saul feel. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. So David, having grown up since the time he played the harp for Saul, maybe that was before, but I think it was probably after. I think this is prior. Maybe Saul didn't recognize him, or maybe he had never met David. We don't know for sure. But here David introduces himself as the son of Jesse, a resident of Bethlehem, which is a little-known precursor of the son who would leave his father to be born in Bethlehem in order to save us from the Goliath of an enemy that is absolutely out to destroy us. And you and I are the victors. And you and I have all we need to secure victory. It's right here. You don't need a weapon. You don't need power. You don't need money. You need this. The Lord does everything else. Be faithful to open your mouth. It's not enough to believe in your heart, but you need to confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Father, tonight we just give you thanks and praise for your word. There is nothing that is of greater concern to you than the people of this earth those who love you, that they grow in the grace and the knowledge of your Son, and those who are lost, that they would hear the word through those of us who believe that they might be saved. It's pretty simple, and you've given us your Holy Spirit to carry it out so it's not even our doing, and we give you all the praise that you've shown your grace and your mercy to us that we can be saved. And what a joy, what a privilege, what an honor to now do your work on this earth. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. All right, everyone. We'll pick up Chapter 18 next Thursday night. Thank you for being here. Make sure you reach out to somebody that you don't know tonight or maybe that you haven't seen in a while or... Uh, And love each other. Somebody needs prayer, take time to pray for them. Let's be God's church. Amen.